Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Sherman Young and Gio Ding again from Money Cat coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. He is a Houston hospitality veteran and a co-founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival. Michael Fulmer, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, Il Bracco Owners Western Edition Restaurant Group announced that they will bring Balboa Surf Club, a Pacific-inspired seafood restaurant, to the former Mazraf space that's in the same Post Oak Plaza shopping center as Il Bracco. It'll be a pretty big menu, like Il Bracco. It'll be open for lunch and dinner, so the menu will have sandwiches, salads, and also sushi, steaks, and, of course, seafood entrees. Michael, let me throw it to you. We've been to Il Bracco a couple of times. You know, it's one of my favorite new restaurants of 2022. I know you're a fan as well. So based on your experiences at El Bracco, what are your expectations for Balboa Surf Club? I'm excited about it. Um, I mean, it, you know, it's been well documented that some, you know, some of the the owners and staff came from the Houston's operation and they brought that kind of not just that work ethic, but that that style, that blueprint with them. Uh, and what I mean by that, at least in, in my interpretation of it, is that, that, that they really are indeed their their dishes, you know, to a point where they're just they're they're not only they're really good, not only do they taste good and look good, but they're formed in such a way that the staff can execute them at that high level with considerable volume. Um, and that's that's no small feat. Uh, and, you know, I really enjoy I've been to El Bracco probably five or six times and, and would happily go back at almost any time. Because uh, it's just, it's like, it's very warm. It's very comforting. The, the service is s- solid. And I, I like all the dishes. So, you know, moving into the, the foray of seafood, you know, I think they'll bring that with them. I think that speaks well. And the other thing that I find encouraging is that it, it sounds like they're kind of going to bring a little bit of their own personality to that. You know, like they like we, we grew up with some of this. And the one thing you can, you know, at least I could say about kind of Houston's and the restaurants of that ilk is they can be a bit homogenized. And it's not like they're going to reinvent the wheel here, but bringing a little more personality to it, I think will be welcome. No, I, I think that's all well said. You know, as you alluded to, Robert Quick and Matt Gottlieb, who are the CEO and COO of Western Edition, spent about a decade individually working for Hillstone, which is the restaurant group behind Houston's in, in various roles. Robert has said in the press release that some of Balboa is inspired by kind of the food he grew up eating in California. And I talked to Matt about this a while ago and and said, oh, Bracco is so great. Like I do one in city center. I do one in the woodlands. I do one, you know, I'd, I'd knock them out. And he said that that's not really what they want. They want each restaurant in the company to be a destination. And so they'll only do one of whatever style per market. So Obraco is the only Obraco we'll get in Houston that has a sister location in Dallas. And instead of doing a second Obraco, we get a seafood restaurant. I, I'm excited because I've, I've enjoyed their spin on Italian food. You know, like you said, it's, it's very consistently well executed. And I think that especially with something like seafood, that counts for a lot. 
and it's not, you know, it's not that it's necessarily the most exciting menu. It's all pretty familiar stuff, but it's done very well. And so I'll be curious to see how they kind of put their spin on different seafood dishes in a way that's familiar, but unique to unique to the concept. Let me ask you to to think a little a little more broadly. I mean, you know, we're in a seafood restaurant seem to be having a moment. We have Gulfstraumen at the post that's been gotten a lot of attention. Obviously, Aaron Bluedorn and and the team there just opened up Navy Blue. Now we have now we have El Braco or excuse me, Balboa Surf Club. What what is it about seafood you think that's so trendy all of a sudden? if trendy is the word i would use i mean you hear that phrase gulf seafood we're 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 not like in the shadow of the gulf we're right there and there's all this great seafood and one of the great things about really really about this country is that you go to different regions and have you know the specialties whether it be preparation ingredients or a combination therein and i think our region is no different than that and it, to me if anything it's more surprising that there's been a sort of a lapse or or less of that here you know there's just kind of like the sort of a few fried seafood places don't get me wrong i love that you know uh, you know take me to christie's or any of the you know the mexican places on airline or wherever but like we've kind of been lapsing without having a good really high end seafood place or very good ones and it doesn't have to be super high end you know we're not talking like le bernardin um, but that's been kind of, uh, I guess, 1751 and Carol Cole been kind of carrying the standard. And I think there's room for so much more. Uh, right. I so- mean, we never really replaced Reef as like the consensus Gulf Coasty best seafood restaurant in town. Not that Balboa Surf Club aspires to be Gulf Coast, right? They're kind of looking to the Pacific instead. And, and not that necessarily it aspires to be like a James Beard kind of in the mix like like reef was but you know but certainly gulf stramen certainly navy blue are kind of playing in that water you know this new little's oyster bar from the pappas restaurant group i think has has some high aspirations in that regard so i think i think seafood is having a moment and and getting beyond as you said kind of the classic gulf coast grilled snapper fried shrimp raw oyster model uh is exciting and and gives us some new choices Absolutely. I'm, I'm like, I'm really excited about little, you know, the Pappas little oyster bar, um, you know, Willie G's, which was so, you know, had a great beginning and then really just, just delved into a real long-term, uh, you know, era of mediocrity and has been, you know, reimagined in its new location. And is I've been a couple of times, I've been with you, I think once, and it was fantastic. You know, that's, that's really encouraging. So I'm excited to see these places to see more seafood places coming up. Seafood's very hard in the restaurant industry, you know, for the high, the price point, the value perception, you know, you've got to be well capitalized, all those things, and you've got to execute at a high level. And so they're harder. They're much harder to do than, than, you know, the basic comfort food places. But when it's done well, man, it's just, it's, it's really on next level. And, and I think that's exciting. Yeah. And I think with the opening of Balboa Surf Club sometime in the spring, roughly mid-May, you know, maybe maybe you'll get to celebrate Mother's Day there. Maybe not. Just depends on how everything comes together. But we're going to have like a little like a little seafood power row. Because if you think <laughs> about, you know, you've got you've got Willie G's at the Post Oak. Right. But Uchiko uh, basically next door to Balboa Surf Club and that new building that Zadok Jewelers opened. 
And then as you alluded to, there's Caracol uh, that's been on Post Oak for a number of years. So that's a bustling yeah, restaurant Bay, district. Just across, just across the freeway there too. And, you know, yeah. so. Right, right. Never mind. Right. Uzo Bay and, and Lock Bar. Exactly. Yeah. That, well said. So, yeah, it's like that area. I've always think of the Galleria is kind of home to, you know, nothing but steakhouses, but it's, it's going to have some pretty powerful seafood options uh, nearby. What's also interesting is their locations. They're going to be literally within walking distance. And, and this is in a town where people do not walk literally within walking distance of the other restaurants. So yeah, they uh, share a parking lot. I mean, it's the it, same, Yeah, it, you know, by, by August standards, you know, the classic Houstonian people may drive from one side of the parking lot to the other because <laughs> it's kind of a schlep in the heat, but in, in any normal city, you would not, you would, you would walk from one to the other. But I, you know, I think they could own that lot, you know, doing two different concepts, you know, within it, like, you know, I, I, I well, they have I to, think they have to share it with Kenny and Ziggy's, but yeah. Other, yes, yes, they do. Yes, they do. Let's move on to topic number two. 70 year old Tex-Mex restaurant, Spanish village announced that it will close March 31st to make way for new development. Uh, people who listened to last week's show kind of heard, Steve Rogers, the the person who purchased uh, Spanish Village a couple of years ago, allude to the fact that he was going to have a major announcement. That is the announcement that he's redeveloping that property and that Spanish Village will go away. Michael, I don't know that there's a ton necessarily to say about this, but I thought I would see if you had any memories of Spanish Village. After all, this is this is a very iconic Tex-Mex restaurant that that people have been going to for generations. Yeah, I mean, we live in a town that doesn't really do historical preservation, you know, culturally. We kind of move on to what's the next thing. And so this is part of our history. And so there's, I think a lot of people have a lot of thoughts and feelings about that, you know, in a really positive way. And so it's, it's, it is the end of kind of an era. The other side of that, of course, is no matter where you live in Houston, you're going to be close to a Mexican Tex-Mex concept. And so the idea of like traveling for it is, is kind of foreign. Um, for me, my personal anecdote would be, uh, and this is, I'm just going to come clean on this. I was never really a fried chicken person, you know, much to the horror of most of my friends, including, uh, my good friend, Jenny, who took it as a, just like the gauntlet was thrown down. She was going to convince me that there was great fried chicken out there and I was going to like it. And one of the places she took me to was, of all places, Spanish Village. Like, like what? So we went there and you, you, know, you have to wait. It says wait 20 minutes. You wait 40 minutes. And then you have like cheese enchiladas while you're waiting, which are amazing. And then the fried chicken was incredible, you know, and it became like it instantly like I understood why it was on the short list of so many, uh, you know, writers as to what where's the great fried chicken in Houston and Spanish Village of all places. And I always thought that was really cool that they that they hung on with that for a long time and that became part of their identity. Yeah, no, I, I think that's all well said. I saw a funny comment on the Culture Map Facebook post about this because the, the restaurant is officially Spanish Village Mexican restaurant. And one of the commenters said, is it Mexican or is it Tex-Mex? And the answer to the commenter is it was opened in an era when we did not make that distinction. When, sure. when every Mexican restaurant in Houston, at least was Tex-Mex, right. You know, cheese enchiladas, chips and queso, all of all that kind of classic stuff. This is, you know, even sort of pre fajitas, right. Mama Ninfa wouldn't, wouldn't start serving tacos al carbon until 
the seventies and this, this opened in 1953. So it, it does have that nostalgia factor for people. And, you know, I think about Felix, the, the classic Tecmax restaurant in Montrose that, that closed in the late aughts and kind of gave way to Uchi. We don't, we don't have very many restaurants like that anymore. You know, it, I mean, El Patio, you know, Club El Pat- right. El Patio is kind of the one that kind of holds on. And yeah. then people who grew up in the in the southwest side of town will tell you that there's Larry's in Richmond that, that continues yep. to to right. hold the torch to this day. But but yeah, you know, this is this is part of our culinary history. And and it's not that there aren't Molinas, certainly, you know, there are restaurants that still serve this kind of food, but it's not it's not as popular uh as it once was, and and they don't have the the character, the dining room of a place like Spanish Village. So this is open until March 31st. I, I know I'll be making at least one visit uh, before that, just just for you know one last round of margaritas. Oh, I'll definitely pop by at, at the very least for the cheese enchiladas, which you know are, were just fantastic. All right, and then let's do topic number three: the Kirby Group, the owners of bars like Heights Beer Garden, Holman Draft Hall, and Pitch Twenty Five have opened Bayou Heights Beer Garden, a new bar on Washington Avenue. It's interesting. It's set up like Heights Beer Garden in that there's one building that does wine and beer, a separate building that does cocktails and spirits, and then new this time is a third building that does coffee and pastries. But I think the reason I'm asking you about this, even though you're not uh, a drinker, is that Chef Teddy Lopez, formerly of Killen's Restaurants, is now the executive chef for the Kirby group and he's created the menu uh, and there's some barbecue on it. There's, there's adobe rub brisket, there's pork ribs, there's pulled pork. He's smoking the chicken wings, a couple other things. And of course you, you've worked with Teddy for a long time. You know, his, his food his barbecue pretty well. And so Michael, I, I say all that to say to you, does knowing that this new bar, which is basically right near Killen's, the comfort food restaurant where Teddy used to work, and right next to Truth Barbecue, is doing barbecue. Are, are you gonna Are you gonna go see your old friend Teddy and see what he's up to? Of course, of course. At the very least, to support and say hi, but more so that the idea that you know it's it's great when you you know bars have food and you know the whole the idea of bar food, and some places just kind of phone it in and they'll you know maybe something on the far realm of excitement like fried pickles, woo! But I mean, you're just kind of like giving people something to eat while they're drinking. And that's become less and less of a, of a way of doing things and more of like, how can we make this better? How can we create more of an identity for ourselves, you know, where people like really like to eat that and bringing Teddy in is, is a direct, you know, statement of saying that, yes, we want this to be next level. We want it to be good. Teddy's, you know, not only his menu conception, but his plating is outstanding. Some of the best in the city, I'd say easily. I mean, he, he worked at Joel Rubichon in Vegas. He has this, like, he understands high concept, but he also, this guy knows how to smoke a brisket. He knows how to do ribs. He knows how to do barbecue, all of it, not just the Trinity. When he decides to do something like lamb ribs, which are one, hard to source, and two, hard to do well, it's like insane how good they are. So I'm always excited by anything he does. And that's like, that's like a really big sort of building concept, as you just really mentioned, that there's a lot going on there. So 
you know, how are they going to make that work and, and, and make it all accessible and, you know, money, you know, get a good return on that. And man, bringing Teddy in is just a great, great, great idea. Great job. Uh, I, I think he's going to do wonderful there and I'm really excited to try his food. Yeah. I will say I stopped by for a drink and just to kind of soak in the atmosphere on a Saturday night and I, I had already eaten dinner, so I didn't, and, and I wasn't sure exactly, you know, how much of the menu he was going to have, you know, cause it was kind of a soft opening friends and family situation. But I will say, I've looked at the menu the menu looks good. And, and as you said, Teddy's a very talented guy. And so, you know, I am curious what he's doing and, and the idea that they're going to start serving food at, you know, four or five o'clock in the evening and until 10 o'clock at night. I mean, barbecue at dinner, still relatively rare. I mean, I know truth rolled it out, but it, it's still, still kind of a limited way. And so, you know, this idea that you could, you could get it for dinner and and get a great cocktail or a glass of wine or a beer from the, the bar at Bayou Heights is, is uh, pretty compelling to me. And I asked him a little bit about, you know, he's got this young pastry chef that he's really excited about working with, and they're going to do cakes, they're doing cookies, they're doing uh, vinoiserie. So it it's a legitimate destination in the morning too, for kind of remote workers or anyone who, who wants a cup of coffee, you know, on that Washington corridor. And so, uh, yeah, I'm excited to kind of see how this, how this develops. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I don't see them become, they're not going to be like part of the barbecue circuit on uh, by any means. I'm sure they're not gonna be doing like 20 briskets a day, but you know, they can see how that works and they can pivot accordingly. Uh, I mean, they're still a young company and they're not beholden to like these sort of entrenched, you know, canonized menu that they've had. Like I, I always think of like, like Hay Merchant, they opened Hay Merchant and like the food at Hay Merchant was, was really good. It was like destination worthy. And, you know, for me, I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not a drinker. So the beer didn't really matter to me, but uh, the food did. And that's a whole area that Washington corridor, there's a lot of competition for quality food, whether it be casual or even more, a little bit higher. And um, I, I think they're really going to just stake themselves out there and, and really uh, uh, conquer it. At least I, I hope they, I hope they do well. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's well said, right? It's not a barbecue place with cocktails like Pinkerton's or, or even truth. Now it's a cocktail bar that is serving a little bit of barbecue. And so the expectations are different and it's just, it, it rounds out their offerings rather than being the showcase. But, but Teddy does have credibility in that area. And so I think, you know, just for that reason alone, it's, it was worth uh, a brief discussion. Sure. All right, Michael, I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. Michael, for our Restaurants of the Week, I want to talk to you about Gatsby's Prime Seafood. This is the new sister concept to Gatsby's Prime Steakhouse. It opened back in November in the former Tony Mandola's building on Wah. Michael, we had a pretty good dinner at Gatsby's Prime Seafood. So let me throw it to you. What did you what did you think about the overall experience? We had a really good dinner. I actually went in with kind of middling expectations and, you know, that's a loaded thing, expectations, right? You always kind of want to go in with an open, fully open mind, but it was really good. It was really good. The seafood tower, you know, their presentation is very dramatic with the dry ice that comes out, but it's not just a dog and pony show here. It's like, 
like the, the king crab on it was cooked perfectly. It came right out of the shell. You, know, you got these big giant shrimp, which you can, you know, normally go on the shrimp cocktail, you know, seafood towers can be problematic. A lot of people say, well, that's, you know, they, in terms of what the value is for them. And I thought theirs was like spectacular. It was a good value and everything was executed on it really well. Sometimes some places will throw like, Oh, we're going to give you, fish parts in a red sauce, you know, it's like their way of kind of getting rid of certain things. And instead, this is like, these were all premier things on there. You know, the lobster, the shrimp and the oysters were excellent. They were clearly had just been shucked and still had the, the liquor in them as it would be. And uh, man, I would get that again. That, that was a great beginning. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the snow crab and it, and it came with that great uh, champagne mignonette that we just like couldn't get enough of melted butter for the for the lobster and the crab i mean it just it all came together really well you know i i agree with you sometimes seafood towers can be a little bit like you know why did i spend all the money on this but when you're in that kind of celebratory mood and when they when every all the individual components really come together it's it's a very celebratory kind of experience and and so i agree with you and then you know i thought the entrees were really good i mean you know we did a gatsby's obviously known for their steak so we got a we got a steak but then they were doing a blackened halibut special that was absolutely out of this world. Yeah, halibut's one of those dishes that, you know, one of those fish that no, it's one of my favorite fish. And normally the less done to it, the better, because I think it just stands up so well in terms of flavor and texture. You know, it kind of has that just that right, not too much oil into it, but it has enough of a distinct flavor that, you know, sauces can actually detract from the experience of it. There's better fish for that. But in this case, you know, it wasn't covered in blackening spices it was just enough to kind of accentuate it with uh, uh kind of like it was like kind of like an oscar sauce kind of a, a butter reduction there with with all that crab meat it was freaking delicious and the redfish on the half shell which those who know it's like it's not an actual that means the skin of course is on the lower part was cooked perfectly you know really just flavorful moist great texture on it I mean, we couldn't get enough of both. Yes, the steak was cooked perfectly. It was a really high quality steak and good, but like the fish really shined. It was like, you know, like one of the metrics we sometimes talk about is like, would you go back? And like, I plan on going back for sure. Like I, we had a really good experience and, and there's all kinds of things on the menu. I still wish to try, you know, uh, you know, when I look at and I see like a shrimp cocktail over $20, some Sometimes I, you know, my eyebrow goes up a little bit on that, but man, I would get that again in a heartbeat. Just great giant shrimp, perfectly, you know, poached for this. So great texture. Just, man, uh, it's just so, so satisfying. It looks good, tastes good. And their desserts, which, you know, uh, sometimes some people that's a little bit much for some, and sometimes we pass on it. But uh, in this case, we didn't. And, uh, we had like the, that chocolate dessert that they make. Uh, I'm not sure what it's called but it was outstanding. And the bread pudding, you know, was really moist and flavorful. You know, there's a couple of, I guess it was a flourless chocolate cake. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, we, and we had really good service too. In a time where, you know, it's not the, the labor market. We've talked about this before. It's, it's got, it's getting steadily better because so many people left the industry and places are, you know, they're, they're getting their training programs in place where they realize like that really means a lot. Uh, we had a great server, did a great job. No, no, I, I, I agree with all of that. And, and just for the sake of the audience, we were, we were a known quantity. You know, I, I set this up with the, the PR firm and, and they comped the meal. And, and so, you know, they were, 
they were looking to impress us. And of course, they they succeeded absolutely with that endeavor. And then, you know, the only thing the only thing you didn't mention that I, I just think we have to uh, are the onion rings, which were oh. these like these thick, uh, a little bit sweet, like almost like a funnel cake style batter. But like a beer uh, were batter, just, I think. yeah, they were so crispy and so delicious. They were enormous. And so two onion rings or three onion rings was plenty. You know, that portion was very easy to share. But, but they were one of the highlights. But they were cooked so well. Like, you know, you, we've all had that onion ring where you bite and all of a sudden it all falls apart or the onion falls out. Or it's, you know, clearly these have been pre-bought, you know, from like a Cisco operation. And that wasn't the case here. This, that's a top three onion ring for me. And seeing more of that, you know, seep into Houston menus is a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, some places have that kind of onion ring culture. Uh, Maine has that onion ring culture, you know, where you just see it everywhere. And it's a great and I'm a huge fan. So to see more of that is a great thing. And to see it executed at that level. Yeah, that, that was a top three onion ring for me. <laughs> and then just briefly, I want to touch on as our second restaurant of the week. I want to talk about Home Slice Pizza. This is the Austin import that just opened in Midtown in the former Tafia Sparrow Bar and Kitchen space, right next to the Continental Club, right next to the Breakfast Club. This is one of those kind of Austin restaurants. Uh, it's very well known. Certainly their you know, original location. Um, uh, I'm going to say South Congress as opposed to South Lamar or South First. I think it's South Congress. Kind of known for it its South line. Congress. Yeah. yeah. Known for its line. They have a second location kind of in North Austin. New York style pizza whole pies by the slice very much east coast inspired they you know you can get chopped clams on your pizza if you want they do sandwiches they do a meatball they do an italian they do a chicken parm i've rambled on long enough let me just ask you what did you think of home slice pizza well i mean home slice is, is the institute it's become an institution in austin and with good reason you know and it's not just for like you know the beer soaked people leaving you know or in between bars they do a really solid job and I've always enjoyed going there, usually in between going to different restaurants as it would be. But having it here, you know, there's always room for another quality pizza place. And they bring, you know, this sort of commitment, like they're making all the dough. They're, you know, I'll tell you one thing. this the, the pizzas are good. Like the white clam pizza was really good. And they're, they're decently priced, too. You know, you're not going to. You don't need to take a loan out after just because you picked up uh, two pizzas. But the sandwiches, like we don't really have big, you know, what you call like sub or hero culture, you know, the sandwich culture here. And they're cold subs and they're hot subs. I guess we had the meatball one, uh, but they do like this cold Italian one. I, I hate to use the word cold because it almost sounds like, oh, is it cold? But it's, man. It's, it's a deli. So, it's like a deli style yes. sandwich. And like I've had so many, you know, mediocre ones. I've just forgotten, you know, what it's, ha you know, like that's something that's much more accessible in a Northeast, you know, corridor kind of uh, uh, towns. And man, they just totally hit the bullseye with that one. Uh, like that's one of those things if I was going by to pick up a pizza, I would just automatically get the sub, you know, and get it whether I was eating it then or not. I'd say, okay, I'll save this for later because they're just that good. Um, I'm curious about their calzones. You had another reason to go back there, but man, their sandwich program, solid. Yeah. And they bake all the bread in house for the sandwiches. I think that's speaks well of them. And, you know, obviously they make the, the pizza dough. Their bathrooms uh, are really cool too. Yeah, no, they did a nice job on the design. 
limited indoor seating. It's got a pretty big patio and then it's kind of oriented towards to go. And so I've actually gotten to go from there a couple of times since you and I had lunch there. And, and it's just, uh, it's not like, it's not going to like redefine New York style pizza or subs for anybody, but you know, I found it to be consistently good and, and a welcome addition, you know, as an alternative to Love Buzz, Romano's, even Pizarro's. It, it's just, we can never like, like with anything else, like with burgers, like with tacos, like with barbecue, you know, we can never have too many restaurants that are good at what they do. And I, and I think Home Slice slots right in with all of that. And, and to make it, and to kind of just separate themselves just a little bit without going off the reservation is, you know, having like the, the, those great sandwiches, like, like you said, making their own bread with that, you know, man, just talking about it, man, makes me, uh, I already just had lunch, but I'm ready to go back and get one right now. It's like, they're just <laughs> that, they were just, they were just that good. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave this. Michael, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And I'll be right back with Sherman Young and Gio Dingyan. I am joined this week by the chef owner and chef de cuisine of Money Cat, a new Japanese-inspired restaurant in Upper Kirby. Gentlemen, let me introduce you separately so people can hear your voices. Chef owner Sherman Young, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Eric. I'm excited to be here. Chef de cuisine, Gio Dingayan, welcome. Hi. How are you guys doing? Good. Thank you. Sherman, let me let me just start with you. I always kind of like to start with sort of the roots of a, a person's career. So tell me a little bit about kind of how you got into the restaurant business. Cause I, I mean, I know that you acquired Tobio sushi a couple of years ago, but, but you know, your, your history is not something I'm familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been really weird because I honestly didn't really even get into the restaurant industry since um, 2017, honestly. Uh, so I, I graduated from, from UH uh, with a marketing degree. I worked in an office job for seven, six, seven years um, had no interest in, in restaurant industry, let alone cooking, honestly. Um, and I kind of just picked it up uh, one day in 2016 and kind of just fell in love with it. Um, and I've always kind of been one foot in, one foot out. So I did part-time jobs here and there. My first part-time job, actually, uh, my first restaurant job was is a Kiowa. Um, actually, that was back like in 2014 or 13, actually. But since then, uh, I've, I've stodged at a few places. Um, I've even had... Um, part-time job at Yoacha when I was still working at my office job. So I never really fully committed until 2017 when I went to Uchi. So how did you come to acquire Tobio? Um, so I left Uchi uh, and I knew I wanted to do my own thing. Um, I actually had a concept all, all thought out. I wanted to do fast casual Donbury, Um, and I was in the middle of planning it and everything, but uh, the opportunity for Tobio came up to purchase. So um, I decided at that time that that was the the smarter. Well, I wouldn't say smarter. It it seemed to be the better move at that time. I mean, there's there's pros and cons to to purchasing a whole operation, um, but uh, to me at that time, I felt like that was the smarter move. I mean, certainly more efficient. A well established restaurant with a good reputation and a great location. There are wor- yeah, yeah, there definitely. are worse operations to take over. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, I was naive back then. I. I 
I had, I, I mean, I still don't really know what I'm doing now, but even back then, I, I definitely had no idea what I was doing. And to, to look back, I mean, it, it was not smart at all, honestly. I mean, you're talking about someone with zero experience. Um, and, and generally, from what I believe, if, if a new owner takes over a restaurant, everyone just dips. Like, no one wants to stay around because they, they feel that massive change is going to come. The new owner is probably going to be, you know, some jerk. So no one's really going to stick around for it. So I, I took a huge gamble. Be it, I didn't really even know it was a gamble back then. Uh, but yeah, but I mean, like you said, it, it was a well-established operation. So that's why to me at that time, it, it seemed like the smarter move. Gio, let me, let me bring you in on this. I mean, I know you're a pretty young guy, but, but how did you kind of get into the culinary world? Um, I think ever since uh, towards the end of high school, I already knew that I wanted to be a chef and to work in the food industry. I think all, if not all, my part-time jobs throughout high school have been in like, um, you know, like poke places or boba shops or of the sort, you know. So I think I just fell in love with the whole general idea of hospitality um, and it's taking care of, you know, whoever comes in through your door to eat, to dine. To have an experience, um, whether that whether that be like, you know upscale or not. Um, so I think that's where it started. And then I went to culinary school right after high school. Um, went to Lenote here in Houston, uh, French culinary school. And since then, I think just full force into everything: food, pastry, you know. Yeah. So how did you make your way from uh, Lenotra to Tobio? I think um, I just got out of one of my first few kitchens in Puchin and then I left to Tobio because I wanted something closer to my um, to my home because I live near Ailey. So kind of big travel from like here to the heights where that location was. Um, I think I wanted something, I wanted to learn more about Asian food. And I think with a lot of connections and uh, past coworkers, they all work there too. And I think they just brought me in the door and then I kind of fell in love ever since. All right, Sherman, let me, so let me throw this back at you. I mean, you, you, you sort of admit, you know, you didn't have a ton of experience running a restaurant. You take over Tobio, it's going fairly well, but still, I mean, it's a, it's a big move to, to go from that to we're going to do a second restaurant. So how did you, how did you sort of decide that you were ready to do money cap? Uh, I mean, honestly, you don't really, I mean, in my situation, you don't ever feel ready. I mean, for, for other chef and owners who have been doing it all their lives, I think, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. They, maybe they know they have a certain point in life, but they're like, okay, it's, it's time for the next one. Um, I think for me, I, I've always had a what if, uh, not really a what if, I've always had a, um, I want to see what's next. You know, I'm always uh, itching for like the next step or whatnot. Um, so it, it, it was uh, three years since I took over Tobio. And even by year two, Tobio was self-sufficient on its own. Um, I never really had to worry or, or be there that often. So that's when I really started to plan my next move. Uh, but I know I've always wanted to go inside the loop, uh, mainly because I've, I've only really worked in the loop. Really enjoyed like the, the, the competitive, competitiveness there, the, the, the clientele base there, just locations. So I knew I've always wanted to go in the loop. Yeah. So how did you identify... The location that you found, you know, you're in Kirby Grove, you're right next to Kieran's. I mean, I'll ask you about kind of the 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 other nearby restaurants in a minute, but but how did you kind of identify that, you know, as opposed to Montrose or the Heights or the Galleria, that, that 
upper Kirby was was the right spot for you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know if I put that much thought into it. I, so, okay, so definitely not Montrose because Uchi's there and that's my stopping ground. So I didn't really want to be close to there. Galleria, just because I didn't want to deal with the traffic every day. Um, so actually, it really boiled down to I was really interested in the Heights and Kirby area because I know Kirby area is extremely popular and so the Heights as well, too. But I, I eventually steered away from the Heights mainly because of parking. And I felt uh, that Heights is more kind of a destination spot like for families after work and such. I really wanted to be an area that was, that was extremely busy, like 24-7. So with all like the um, like office buildings nearby, just uh, like really huge cross street. So it just kind of made sense for me. You know, from my perspective as, as someone who doesn't work in restaurants, you know, the obvious move would be like, okay, we've got, a, we've got an established brand in Tobio. That's a concept that people are familiar with. We could just do that again, but that's not what you did. Money Cat is a very different, style of restaurant than Tobio. So maybe just tell me a little bit about that decision. Why why do something completely different? Why not just recreate Tobio? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think at the very base of it, I I think that would be boring, so to speak. Um, you know, Tobio's already doing well, and I think Tobio does very well for, for the area. Um, but I really wanted to push the limits um, in, in every aspect, you know, in culinary or or um, like the drink program or, or even just the design of a whole restaurant. I, I really wanted to push the limits and, and go past that. Um, and, 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 you know, Tobias, since I took over, um, even though I had some part in, in changing like the culture, the menu, et cetera, um, still, I, it's kind of hard to really call it my own since, since I took it over and whatnot. So I really wanted to start a whole new project from the ground up. Um, so so, so Money Cat really is, was a great show space before I took it over. So every single decision from from where to place at the kitchen to to design on the wall was really up to me. So I really wanted to essentially start over and start from scratch. Especially just as I learned so much from 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 running Tobio that I really wanted to start over from scratch and just do something different. I mean, although you know Tobio of course shares some of the same DNA, you know, as you uh, probably see in some of our dishes like the Chito toast. Um, I want to share some of the same DNA, but at the same time, I want to do something different. Yeah, Gio, let me let me bring you back in. I mean, you know, you were working as the pastry chef primarily at Tobio. You're you're the chef de cuisine at Money Cat. So obviously you're doing some breads and pastries, but but primarily overseeing the savory menu. Why did you kind of want to make that leap and and how did you sort of prepare yourself to become the chef de cuisine? I think I was kind of unofficially, unofficially the chef de cuisine of Tobio, actually. So I think behind the scenes, like I helped curate majority of the menu for our events and Bluefin and, but I really just wanted to acknowledge myself as a pastry chef first. I think there's a lot of structure and organization, a lot of mental mise en place that comes with being a pastry chef. And I wanted that to be sort of my first branding, right? You know, it's hard enough to come into the industry at 22 and already be deemed like CDC right away, right? So I wanted to kind of build up as a picture chef first. Um, and I think from it, from everything I've created at Tobio, I think that was a good spot, starting point, but that nowhere is like my end goal. Yeah, I, I know in the, the, some of the press materials about Money Cat that you both did some stodging to prepare for, for opening the restaurant. I mean, you, you know, Sherman, why don't you go first? Maybe talk about kind of where you stodged and, and what the benefits of that, 
those experiences were in helping create money cap. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, uh, oh man, I think it's almost two years ago now. Um, I went to Smith in Chicago. Um, yeah, they're, they're really, really great place. They, they do a lot of progressive stuff. Um, yeah, they do a lot. They work with a lot of uh, fermentations and everything. Um, and they're also, uh, so both that one and the one I'm about to talk to, they're both heart centered restaurants. So that was really just interesting to see. Um, I, you know, I mainly, I mainly saw it just to step out of my comfort zone. Um, Smith, the honestly is way too advanced for me to even really retain anything. Um, uh, so it was really just, uh, being able to place myself in another kitchen and see how, um, one just to work in another kitchen again. And to just uh, really explore what the other food scenes outside of Houston is. Um, the second one uh, was Birdsong in San Francisco. Um, that one uh, also was one of my favorite restaurants to eat at as well, too. I actually got to eat there after my stage, which was uh, I think was more important because I was able to experience uh, creating everything and then, and then taste the end product at the very end. Um, but Birdsong is what they call, um, or what uh, Chef Chris Bladorn calls it a, um, a heritage style. So he, he pays a lot of tribute to a lot of the um, techniques and, and everything he's learned in the past to, to kind of come up with his own cuisine uh, today. So, I mean, both uh, Chef John Shields and Chris Bladorn, you know, they, I look up to a lot and you know, they're really good at what they do. And, and we should say for people who maybe aren't familiar with them, I mean, both of those restaurants hold two Michelin stars. These are very, you know, yeah, very yeah. accomplished, very polished uh, restaurants. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely well-deserving for both of them. Gio, how about you? Where did you, I, I know you went to LA. Yeah, I've been kind of in and out of California for the past uh, three years. Just love the food scene over there. And it's kind of discovered um the Nanaka and, and Soto group. So I touched with them. Um, I think I learned a lot about seasonality and the concepts of kaiseki because here in Houston, omakase is just the buzz. You know, every sushi Japanese restaurant does omakase, right? And I think through kaiseki, I learned more about certain rules and cooking techniques and how um, Japanese cuisine really shines in the kitchen. And um, being, you know, the playfulness, the creativeness of you know, utilizing these ingredients is just was amazing to me working with that group. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, I remember several years ago, the, uh, you know, the final table, the, the cooking competition show on Netflix came out and they did the signature dishes of these various countries. And Kaiseki was the, the one for Japan. And it had this, you know, this tasting menu, this, this set progression. Mm. And, and I, I was sort of looking around and we don't really have that in Houston. I don't, I don't really, you I'm don't. not really aware of any Japanese restaurants that serve a, a traditional Kaiseki meal. Yeah. I, I, I also, yeah, that is true that we, that Houston, we don't, I think it's also based in, we don't have a huge Japanese population other, you know, compared to LA or uh, SF or, you know, pretty much California where the Asian community and Japanese Korea and all that, they're just so centralized, you know, in their own towns. Um, however, I think not that my goal is to do Kaiseki because I feel like I'm not Japanese. I'm not, uh, trying to push a traditional Kaiseki menu. I like to draw, you know, concepts from it and still follow those rules and traditions. However, kind of creating a more centralized dish. I talked to you before about, you know, these tastings that are expanded out like the tomato dish and, um, 
colors are just throughout our menu. I think that's what I really like to focus on. Well, yeah, just be a little bit more explicit about that because you you know we talked about it, you know, privately when I when I went to mm. MoneyCat, but but just expand on that for for the listeners. I mean, how how does the kind of ideas of kaiseki inform you know maybe two or three specific dishes on the menu at MoneyCat? I think uh, one of my my favorite dish of kaiseki is called zensai. So zensai is a kind of I almost want to say a sort of like charcuterie of the seasonal tasting throughout, you know, um, for the season. So it introduces, you know, what flavors, what um, what vegetables, what fish you're about to have throughout your meal in kind of a little pick and eat type of fashion. Um, I think with that dish, I wanted to translate it over to the tomato dish, right? I know uh, we were supposed to open actually in the summertime, and I think tomatoes flourish in the summer. However, we ended up opening closer into winter, and I, I couldn't, um, you know, follow the season to the T. However, when we get the hang of things, I would love to do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, Sherman, let me, let me circle back to you. I mean, it, you know, because some of the things that that Gio's talking about, they're not a dish with you know marinated tomatoes and and squidding soil and and cheese foam you know that's not really a traditional japanese dish but i, I think it kind of speaks to what sets money cat apart so you know maybe maybe just how do you see money cat as a as a japanese restaurant you know how is it how does it sort of break with those traditions and how is it sort of similar yeah i mean i i definitely wouldn't say it's i mean it's definitely for sure not traditionally japanese um I kind of play around the term calling it new Japanese, um, kind of like how new American is, is, is very common nowadays. Uh, new, new Japanese is kind of what I coined it, where we draw a lot of inspiration from, from Japanese cuisine, whether that's ingredients or techniques or um, honestly, whatever uh, we both Chef Gio and I have learned from exploring Japanese culture and just going from there, really. I mean, we're not really, we're not um, totally adhered to Japanese, uh, so I mean, both uh, Shachio and I can uh, really explore just Asian culture in general. So we're not really bound by just Japanese cuisine, but just to make it easy, we just, I just call it new Japanese. Yeah, I I mean maybe maybe give me an example of a dish that you know for you kind of typifies the the menu. I mean certainly the tomato garden is one, but I'm you know I'm sure you have a couple others in mind. Yeah, so I guess regarding the concept. Um, there's a few, like the maitake karage is really good, the katsu sando as well. Um, for me, so the, uh, for me, it's those simple Japanese dishes, um, that, that start off, you know, from that root and then we take our own interpretation or, or whatnot and, and then go from there really. Uh, but really shares like, for example, like the karage is, it's even those mushroom dish that we traditionally is, is chicken. Um, with the katsu sando, everyone's familiar with like a, like a panko fried chicken. Um, yeah, so it's just kind of similar as like that. I think uh, one of my favorite dishes is probably the chamushi with the uh, corn and shark. I think that that's a that yeah. was a really, um, that was my play on eggs and toast. Um, I think from that sort of nostalgia, having that for breakfast and translating that over to that dish, where it's not just you know the custard is not only in the, the cup, the O1 cup with the lid, 
that it's you know displayed where you can see everything in the chamushi from the herbs the the uh, smoked trout roe the mitsuba the green onion the negi strings um and then with the taiyaki which is traditionally a sweet street food dessert but turned savory on the side to pair with it i think that creates a whole new concept to what we're trying to do so let me just ask you i mean do people you know how's it going do people get it are they excited about it or they or are they just you know sort of confused about why there's not traditional chicken karage on the menu oh people people get it for sure uh, well i mean of course not everyone's going to get it um but the people who do get it get it and the people who don't unfortunately we have a really good staff um even from the back of the house so the back of the house is able to to push uh, chef geo's vision by by putting his culinary ideas onto the plate and our front of the house staff is really good by translating that verbally to the guests like how even how to how to eat something or or what's imp- inspiration behind it so um chef geo and i really emphasize a, a good strong relationship between our front of the house and back of the house so we're able to really communicate with each other uh, what our visions are and, and what we have planned for the restaurant as well because it doesn't really matter if, if Chef Gio and I have a vision, but if it doesn't get translated, then it's all for nothing, honestly. Yeah, no, I I mean, I'm thinking back to my own dinner at Money Cat a, a few weeks ago. The server was so excited about all of the dishes that that we were served that night. And I know he had a he had a hand in picking some of the things that came out. And and I think that that speaks well because you want that, you know, maybe these dishes aren't as familiar, not not because they're presented in an unusual way or because they're, they're bending these kind of cultural influences in a way that maybe people haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do think that that's a really important part of the dining experience. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, yeah, again, I can't say enough how, you know, we're grateful for our staff. They, they really believe in our vision. So yeah, we're really fortunate for that. And I think it, it's, I think it's a huge, it is for sure a huge part of our success is that our team members share our vision. I mean, Gio, let me, let me, just kind of get your perspective. I mean, how do you, how do you feel like it's going? I mean, you know, leading the kitchen and, and being there every day. It's definitely, it has definitely been a challenge. Um, I think from first managing, you know, a team of three or four of just pastry chefs, you know, at Tobio to taking on the entirety of sushi bar, the kitchen and the pastry team. I think it has been, um, lots of fun. I think it's been very collaborative. I think that it's never really like, oh, this dish comes out this way the first time. That's not how it's going to come out, you know, the second or third time when we revisit it. So I think with a lot of the, the dishes, we revisit it at least like three or four times until it's ready, until the staff believes it, until not just I'm happy with it, but everyone's happy with it. Because I feel like everyone has something to contribute to this menu, whether it be Oh, this needs a little bit of salt, a little citrus. You know, they're right. You know, they could be right. And just listening to everyone as a whole, even though we may agree or agree with each other, is really important to me as their leader. Well, and and let me just say, I mean, you're you're what, like 25? 22. I'm 22. Ah, I I mean, <laughs> I mean, I have to say that that's mind blowing, considering where I was in my own life at 22. I mean, Sherman, you know, say something nice about entrusting the financial success of this restaurant to someone who's who's so young yeah i mean i i've, I've told i've told you this before i mean i i don't i 
I don't ever really know his age, nor I really care for his age. Um, I mean, fortunately, I've had I've had the pleasure of working with Geo for the past three years prior to MoneyCat. So I mean, we've so I, I've learned to I learned about his work ethic, his his, his talent, and everything. So when it came time to choose the chef de cuisine, um, it was kind of no brainer for me. I mean, age was never really a factor for me because I don't want him, you know, to be viewed as just like a twenty year old chef or whatever. I want him to be viewed as just a Houston chef, honestly. So for, for me, it, it was just a no brainer. Yeah, I guess I I didn't have that kind of clarity in my own life at twenty two that that I, you know, wanted that kind of responsibility or or was you know so clearly focused on a career path. So essentially, I just envy it in others because I I never had it. Um, me too. I'm thirty five. I still don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, <laughs> like, I didn't I know joy for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hopeless. <laughs> I mean. Gio, so let me just ask you, I mean, this, you know, this feels like a lot of responsibility uh, for someone who's so young. I mean, do you, do you find yourself like having to convince the staff to buy in or, or, you know, do you just sort of project competence and authority and people kind of go with it? I, I think the thing that I project the most is compassion and empathy. I think, you know, you want to work with someone who tries to understand you, you know, through the good and through the bad. And that's what I try to do with every one of my cooks. I try to get to know them each and every day from their problems, you know, outside of work and how they can get better as a chef and as a person. I think teaching humanity um, really shines light on what we're trying to do is show humanity through the restaurant industry that we're not just cooks, you know, we're, we're more than that. We're humans too. And you should know like who's cooking your food and who's part of the team and who's contributing to this vision. Um, I think there's been like a lot of talks, one-on-one talks with a lot of my cooks. And I think it's just amazing. I'm so very appreciative that everyone on this team from the ages from like 20 to who knows what, like still uh, believe in me and they believe in this concept. They believe in Chef Sherman. They believe in each other. And I hope I could keep, you know, us tightly knit like that. You know, I just, I have to say that, that observation just really speaks to your maturity because, you know, in the, in the old days, you know, even 10 years ago in restaurants, you know, the executive chef or the chef de cuisine, it was kind of my way or the highway. And, you know, there's yelling and, and demeaning people who, oh, don't, there's still who don't meet the yelling. standard. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a little more um, reasonable. You know, I, I want to make sure that they understand <laughs> what they're doing if they're doing it right, if they're doing it wrong, you know, that's, that's the part of teaching that I'm learning to do that. I've never had to teach this many, these many like people all at once simultaneously back-to-back questions, back-to-back chef. Can I have some help? Chef, can you show me how to do this? You know, um, but I love to feel needed. I love that this restaurant, uh, these cooks, they, they need me. And I, I, that's what really warms my heart working at Money Cattle. All right. Well, let me bring this to a close. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned you, you have some ideas about seasonality of the menu. You know, you've been open for about a month. How do you see the menu evolving? You know, how will it be different, you know, in June or July than it is right now in, in January? I think during the summertime, I will seasonality in Houston is different than seasonality anywhere else. You know, we really have just two seasons, just, or we have all four seasons in one day. So just adapting to what our vendors have available, trying to see what to what 
I think a lot of it also comes from being first generation Asian American, the diaspora of using what we have, where we are, even though we're not home. And I think with that, that translates to our product and what our vendors have and what um, what we can do testing the limit and pushing the limit, sorry, not testing it, pushing it always and figuring out a new concept with each new dish. Sherman, what about you? What are your goals for the maybe the first six months of Money Cap? I'm not sure, honestly. It's 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 been a tough journey for me as well going to construction. So I'm just happy to be open. So I don't really have any goals, honestly. Yeah, people talk about that moment when you stop writing checks and start depositing them. <laughs> yeah, it might, it might be a while for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, gentlemen, I, I have to say that that brings me to the end of my questions. Is there anything you would like to discuss that I haven't asked you about? Hmm. What was your favorite dish uh, that night? Ooh, uh, the tomato garden was was definitely up there for me. And I'm a sucker for Chutoro. So, you know, Chutoro toast is kind of a smart twist on like the uni toast that you see everywhere. Mm. Um, and also it had a little bit of that like bagel and lox vibe. Yeah. You know, that that really works for me. I could I could eat a lot of that. So, well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no. Uh, before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Mm-hmm. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Sherman, I'll start with you. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite ingredient? Butter. Gio, how about you? Uh, mine is going to be yuzu. Gio, what is the first band you ever saw in concert? Uh, I believe in 1975. Sherman, how about you? Disclosure. Sherman, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Jack and Box, whatever we talk about, all three of them. <laughs> You're you're well positioned. They're they're all very close to Money Cat. Uh, Jack and Box. It's I, I've walked there before. It's like two minutes down. <laughs> I've walked there before. <laughs> all right, Gio. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? I think mine it has to be Whataburger. Something with the patty melt at two a.m. just hits. <laughs> all right, Gio. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Ooh, Houston. I actually don't watch sports, so I actually don't have one. That's fair enough. Sherman, do you have a favorite Houston sports figure? I do, Hakeem Olajuwon. It's a a great choice. All right, finally, Mm -hmm. Sherman, when you're ordering a pizza, what are your go-to toppings? Uh, Actually, just like a basic spinach pizza. Gio, how about you? I like all meats, just like sausage, ham, bacon, everything. He's one of the weird ones that likes pineapples, too. Yes, and pineapple. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense for a pastry chef, sweet and savory. I'll allow it. All right. (laughs) Uh, Sherman, give us the, the website and the social media for Money Cat. Yeah, uh, website and, and Instagram handle is MoneyCatHTX. Um, yeah, just find us there for more info. And, and uh, yeah. Awesome. Gentlemen, thanks again. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate your time. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.